Job chapter 2 is our passage, Job chapter 2. Some of you over the last uh, couple of weeks, as we've interacted, have expressed concern about whether or not we're going to make it all the way through the book of Job this spring. And we have spent two weeks on the first chapter. So we're moving at the clip of half of a chapter a week. And then we took a two-week break. We had missionaries, and that was just the week that we could uh, host the Westers, and so we were glad to have them. I had to be out of town last week at a uh, Southern Baptist of Texas convention meeting, and so Corey uh, preached on uh, a parable, which he's going to do again later in the spring. And so we're back on track tonight, and uh, I'm happy to report that tonight we're going to cover one entire chapter in the book of Job, chapter 2. And next week, we're going to cover one entire chapter in the book of Job. So that will be Job chapter 3. And then when we get to Job chapter 4, we're going to put the pedal to the metal. And in one week, we're going to go from Job chapter 4 all the way to 31. So we're going to make a lot of ground, uh, but not tonight. Tonight, we need to be careful and move move slowly in Job chapter 2. You've probably heard the phrase, you've probably used the phrase, things have gone from bad to worse. Blumberg News, a huge wager on office buildings is going from bad to worse. News article talking about more people working remotely, people have built these big buildings, nobody's there to work in them. Uh, NewJersey.com, sort of a, a tourist publication for the The state of New Jersey ran a political piece recently that said a Biden-Trump rematch goes from bad to worse. And the article was talking about the polling numbers and the approval ratings for these two candidates saying they're not moving in opposite directions, they're both moving in the same direction. 247 Sports said from bad to worse and one bizarre day for Louisville basketball. Uh, It started, they had record low, you don't want to have record low attendance, record high attendance is good, record low attendance for a home game at Louisville versus Arkansas State, that was the bad, the worse was they lost to Arkansas State with record low home attendance. Newsweek, Ukraine's luck going from bad to worse talking about losing political support inside Ukraine and outside Ukraine for the conflict. The Hill ran an interesting story. This one really was interesting. How accusations of college anti-Semitism went from bad to worse with one House hearing. Maybe you paid attention to this a few weeks back. The Ivy League presidents were called in to testify before Congress for their policies or lack thereof about anti-Semitism on their campuses. It was bad to begin with. By the time they got done talking, it was worse for all of them, and several of them have lost uh, their jobs in the wake of that testimony on Capitol Hill. So when I opened my Bible and I turned to Job chapter 2, the translators of the ESV have put a nice section heading above Job 2.1 that says, Satan attacks Job's health. And I think what they could have said is, Job's suffering goes from bad to worse. Okay? And we're making light of this at the outset, but I want to acknowledge that the things we're talking about tonight, not to be a downer and throw a wet blanket on the whole thing, but these are heavy things. These are serious things. These are the kinds of things that are easy for you and me to talk about in the abstract, and they're much more difficult when it's actually something going on in your own life. Uh, I've talked with a couple of people, a handful of folks, uh, over the last week or so, People who are suffering, not exactly like Job was suffering, but people who are suffering. And it's just reminded me that it's easy to sort of talk about Job's experience in the abstract and to pull a bunch of nice lessons that we hopefully would apply to our lives. It's much, much different when you're in Job's situation. And sometimes life is bad, and sometimes it goes from bad to worse. So these are real things, and they're heavy things. Let's read the text. Job chapter 2, and we'll read to the end of the chapter. The Bible says, Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, 
from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin. All that a man has, he will give for his life. Stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive Good from God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came, each from his own place Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. They made an appointment together to come and show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a a distance, they did not recognize him, and they raised their voices and wept. And they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. Father, tonight we're grateful to be gathered together to worship. uh, We have sung praises to your name. We've sung and lifted our voices to glorify the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We have proclaimed in song that when we have peace like a river or when the, the sorrows of life overwhelm us like a sea billow, that it is well with us and with our soul and that you are good and faithful to your people. Lord, these are easy things to say and to sing in this room. They're much harder to say and to sing when we find ourselves in times of suffering. So we just ask for your help tonight. Father, we pray that your word would shape us and change us. We pray that Uh, we would hold fast to our integrity and to our confidence and our trust in you, even in the midst of suffering. Uh, Guide us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. As we read this chapter, uh, there's a lot that is parallel with the second half of Job chapter 1. In fact, there are portions that are just word for word the same. And so as I prepared the outline for Job chapter 2, most of the points are things that we talked about in Job chapter 1. And it's not my job to be inventive and to come up with new things, but it's just my job to say what the text says. And so we're going to talk about a lot of things that we talked about uh, when we looked at Job chapter 1. We will try not to repeat ourselves too much and think about how this story has developed. So uh, it is a story. Let's start with the characters and with the setting. There's much that's familiar. Almost everyone here you've met before, there is one new person to introduce. So the major characters have not changed. There's the Lord, there's the sons of God, the Satan, or the Satan. Uh, There's Job, and the only new character is Job's wife. Job's wife. We're going to say more about her in a little bit. We don't know her name. 
This is the only place she speaks in the book. And presumably this is the same woman, the same wife that Job will have at the end of the book when, spoiler alert, he has more kids. So we don't know that, but we assume that. We don't have any reason to question that. We'll come back around and talk about Job's wife in a minute. Uh, the setting. This scene begins in the divine council, and then things that happen and are discussed in this divine council spill out, and they play out on earth in real life, you might say. Uh, I love talking about this divine council idea and who are these uh, B'nai Elohim, uh, what does the Old Testament and the New Testament say about this? I visited with one of you just before church talking about this. Uh, we spent a good deal of time talking about that in Job chapter 1, and so I'm not going to revisit that tonight in Job chapter 2, and I'm just going to acknowledge uh, that that's where the scene begins, and then things move to the earth. So that's the character in the settings. Let's talk first about the Lord and Satan. The Lord and Satan as they have interaction together. Again, I would point out to you that it was the Lord who initiated a conversation with Satan. And again, Satan responded evasively. So Satan and the sons of God come to present themselves before the Lord. And it is the Lord who says, have you considered my servant Job? And Satan responds with this sort of thing, where have you come from? Well, I've been walking around on the earth and going to and fro, and we talked about that a few weeks ago. It's basically a teenager answer saying, how was your day at school today? Fine. Where have you been? Down there on the earth. What have you been doing? I've been walking around. Everywhere, nowhere, none of your business, just sort of a dodge. So again, the Lord puts Job in the spotlight. Uh, the only thing different uh, from chapter 2 compared back to chapter 1 is that uh, the Lord blames Satan for Job's suffering. He talks about Satan inciting him. And so you can compare Job chapter 2 verse 3 where the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him on the earth, a blameless and an upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. That is word for word what he said in chapter 1 verse 8. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him on the earth, a blameless man uh, and upright. He fears God and he turns away from evil. The only thing that is added in chapter 2 is that the Lord said he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Now, we're not going to spend too much time here, but there's some things that we need to unpack and make sure that we're clear about comparing 2, 3, back to 1, 8, okay? Number one, Job passed the test. He passed the first test. He went through the first round of suffering. Satan's wager, if you want to put it that way, was that he would curse God to his face, and he didn't do it. He didn't do it, and God is highlighting that fact. God has been vindicated. Satan had suggested he wouldn't worship you just because of you. He only worships you because he'd give him stuff and you gave him a great family. The Lord allowed Satan to take all of those things away. And God said, look, he still holds fast to his integrity. There's nobody like him. He loves me. He's faithful to me. He fears me. This is a man after my own heart, in effect, is what the Lord is saying. Job passed the test. Secondly, I want to just note the word incited. You incited me to destroy him. And this is what I want to note to you. I told you last week that the name Satan only appears in the Old Testament three times. Book of Job, story about David, and the book of Zechariah. Only three times. In two of those three, 66%, you also find this idea of Satan inciting people. And it's the story about David taking a census, and his advisors said, don't do it. Trust the Lord, not the number of people in your army, not the number, number of people in your tax base. Don't do it. They're like the sand of the seashore. Don't count them. And David said, count them. When you read about this in Chronicles, it says, in 1 Chronicles 21.1, Satan incited David to take the census. Same word. When you read about the same story of David in 2 Samuel 24.1, it says the Lord was angry with Israel and the Lord incited David. And all I'm pointing out to you without unpacking those two verses is that it's the same dynamic that's at work in the book of Job. God allowed it 
Satan did it. God could have stopped it with respect to David being incited to this census. Satan was responsible for it. He incited. But because God is sovereign over it, it's also true to say that God did it. And that's the dynamic you see at work in the book of Job. Where Job says, the Lord gave and the Lord took away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It was Satan who incited the Lord to do these things. And it was Satan involved in all the catastrophe that happened to Job in chapter 1. But the text says Job didn't sin with his lips when he said that the Lord gave and the Lord took away. He understands that God is sovereign over these things. Next, I just think this is interesting. It's really not super important, but I like it. There's a word in uh, chapter 2, destroy, you incited me to destroy him. It's the same word used of Jonah being swallowed by the fish in Jonah chapter 1. It's sort of a, a, an idiomatic way of saying, you, you wanted me to swallow him up. You wanted me to destroy him. You wanted me to take him out. You wanted this to be the end of him. That was Satan's intention, that Job would be swallowed up. Last, look at the phrase at the end of verse 3, you incited me to destroy him without reason. Okay, we talked about this three weeks ago. God had a reason for allowing these things. God never does anything without a reason. He doesn't do things willy-nilly, off the cuff. He doesn't do things without thinking it through. He always has a reason. The reason in chapter 1 that the Lord allowed these things is that the Lord had been slandered by the slanderer. His character had been maligned. His worthiness had been questioned. And God had a purpose in allowing these things in Job's life. So when he says... You incited me against him to destroy him without reason. God's not saying we did it for no reason. He's saying Job didn't do anything to deserve the suffering that befell him. This wasn't a revenge thing, God getting even with Job. There was no reason that these things happened. But, of course, you understand from chapter 1 that the Lord had a reason and all of it. Now, as I thought about this passage in the last few weeks, because I've had a couple of weeks to chew on this, being gone and having missionaries. When you come to this part of the story, there's a part of me and maybe a part of you that would anticipate that when Satan comes into the presence of the Lord and the Lord says, where have you been? Eh, walking around. Have you considered my servant Job? Nobody like him. Holds fast to his integrity. Fears me, blameless, upright. And he didn't curse me to my face like you said he would. Have you considered Job? There's part of you that expects Satan to sort of fold his arms and shuffle around and say, eh, yeah, you were right. I don't like it one bit. But he doesn't admit anything, does he? He says, oh, well, skin for skin. In for skin. It's because you didn't let me touch him. Right? I want to say something to you that's important. In life, for understanding Job, for understanding people, I think. Apart from God's intervening grace in a person's life, evil always doubles down. Evil doesn't ever come to its senses. It's not the nature of evil. I talk to people all the time who are dealing with sin in their immediate circle, and it's affecting them. And they say to me, I just don't get it. I don't understand it. And I often say there's nothing to get. There's nothing to understand. That's what sin does. That's what evil does. Apart from God's intervening grace in our lives, evil just doubles down again. And again and again. You say, certainly Satan knows that he's not going to trick God or best God or outdo God. Certainly he knows that the Lord knows what he's talking about. And he just keeps doubling down, doubling down, doubling down. And I would suggest to you it's true in the human level, not just the cosmic level. That left to ourselves apart from God's inter intervening grace that's what we continue to do. It makes me think of Proverbs chapter 26, verse 11, like the dog that returns to its vomit, so the fool returns to his folly. 
you look at this and you say, what are you doing? Why would you? I don't understand it. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. That's part of the nature of evil. That's wrapped up in the story of Job. So, again, uh, we talked about this in chapter 1. We see it again here. Satan slandered God and Job, both of them. First of all, he suggested that Job only cared about his own well-being. I think that's the idea behind the, the Hebrew idiom, skin for skin. You can go down all sorts of rabbit trails about what that means, skin for skin. But he's basically saying, look, you, you touch him, you hurt him. It's different than when it's out there and it's other people. Skin for skin. Job only cares about himself. Secondly, he suggests, the Satan suggests that God is unworthy of worship. And he says that and he suggests it very subtly without openly saying it. But that's what he's saying when he says if you touch him, skin for skin, if you take him out, he'll curse you to your face. No one would love you unless you protected them physically. It's the same thing he said in chapter 1, except it was the external things, the family, the money, the blessings, all the stuff. You take that away, he'll curse you right to your face. Who would love you, Lord, if you didn't give them a bunch of money and a great family? Well, Job would, for one. Now the argument is doubling down. Who would love you if you just made them physically miserable? No one would. That's the suggestion. You're unworthy of it, and we'll see that Job still loves the Lord in this situation. Satan is the adversary, he's the accuser, he's the slanderer. He's attributing false motives to Job. Can I give you one warning in life before we move on? Be very slow in life to judge other people's motives. Be very slow. I'm not saying never. I'm just saying be very slow. Be very cautious to say, I know why they did that. I know their motive in that. You may end up playing the role of the Satan. It's what he's doing to Job. It's what he's doing to the Lord. So he's a slander. Again, we saw this a few weeks back. God gave Satan permission and a prohibition. Permission and a prohibition. Look at Job chapter 2 verse 6, the permission, behold, he's in your hand. It's permission. The prohibition, spare his life. Skin for skin, you can afflict him, but you can't kill him. Okay, I'm going to give you these quick. As I thought about verse 6, there's just a few things that kind of roll around in my head. I made a list. I think I've got seven things on this list. It's going to be real quick. I don't have them up on the screen. God didn't have to put Job in Satan's hand. Did not have to do that. It seems, as you read this, that Satan did have the power to take his life if God had not drawn a boundary. He stops him. Don't take his life. Uh, number three, not only... Did he have the power and the ability to do it? It seems like he would have done it if God had not stopped him. Uh, it's clear in the book of Job that Satan cannot overstep a God-given boundary. I mean, there's no question. Don't touch him, well, he doesn't touch him. Don't take his life, well, he doesn't take his life. Uh, all of Satan's actions, I think it's safe to assume, have divine permission. God's sovereignty overrules all of his activity. God, number six, being God, can draw the boundaries where he wants to draw them. He's not obligated to draw them in any certain place. And God is completely sovereign over Satan and all evil. So the balance you, you wrestle with here is that you read Job in the context of the Scriptures, you say, God... God is not the author of evil, and God cannot be tempted with evil, and God does not tempt anyone with evil, but He is certainly sovereign over evil, and it falls under His control without any question. So, that's the Lord and Satan. Let's talk about Job's suffering and response. Satan struck Job with, quote, loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And you can read this in verse 7 
in verse 8. He ends up with a broken piece of pottery and he scrapes himself while he sits in the ashes. So there's lots of theories about what this actual illness was. Uh, and I've never read some of these theories, but there's a theory that it was a leprosy of some kind. Uh, there's some people that say it was some sort of melanoma, some sort of cancerous affliction. Uh, some people say it was uh, a version of elephantiasis. You can look that up if you want to see a picture of that. I don't have one to show you. I do have a list of things in the book of Job that in his laments he says he's suffering from. Okay, Just a few things from the book of Job. Chapter 2, he describes it as disfigurement. Chapter 7, insomnia, worms, scabs, nightmares, depression, suicidal thoughts. Chapter 19, putrid breath. Chapter 19, emaciation and tooth loss. Chapter 30, chronic pain, darkened, discolored skin, peeling skin, and fever. That's just some of the symptoms you gather from the whole book. I don't know what it was. Nobody knows what it was. It doesn't sound fun. Okay? Why do I, why do I put that whole list in front of you? Okay? Can I tell you why I don't put it in front of you? I don't put it in front of you so that you say, Oh, poor Job. No one ever suffered like Job. That was the worst. That sounds like the worst ever. I don't know if you've ever had conversations with people, but sometimes when Christians get together and they talk about things happening in people's lives, we play a weird little game where we try to one-up each other on suffering. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Maybe in Sunday school you say, hey, I have a, an aunt, Susie, and uh, she has cancer and she's going in for a biopsy. This week, would you pray for Susie? And then someone else says, well, I have a, a cousin named uh, Robbie, and Robbie, he's had cancer for 15 years. He's had 10 different kinds of cancer, and the story grows a little bit. And then somebody says, well, I know this guy. I think it's like the boss of my brother's mother-in-law, and I heard about him, and we just kind of grow, and we grow, and we grow, and we try to one-up each other, and we try to, look, no point in trying to compare yourself to Job. No point in you saying, okay, there's no point. No point in you looking at that list of things and saying, well, I've never had it that bad. I guess I don't really know what suffering is. Suffering takes all kinds of different forms. Physical forms, relational forms, mental forms, spiritual forms... And we should not be people who try to compare our suffering to someone else. Don't be the person that looks around and says, well, there's starving kids in Africa, so I guess I don't have anything to complain about. You know what? There are starving kids in Africa. And when you suffer, it's suffering. You shouldn't have to validate that level of suffering on some kind of scale with anybody. You shouldn't have to try to compare or one-up. or It doesn't help anybody to say, well, I know you're going through a hard time, but did you know that Job had putrid breath? Like maybe your suffering's not so bad. That's not, that's not how we ought to talk about suffering. When people are suffering, you just acknowledge that's suffering. We don't try to compare. We don't try to rank. He's suffering. Loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. That was his suffering. Two, two thoughts here. Uh, Satan was directly responsible for the affliction and God was ultimately sovereign over the affliction. This is important because in chapter 1, I don't know if you noticed this, but there's this interaction with Satan and the Lord. And the Lord says, okay, you can take his stuff, you can take his family, you can do all these external things. And it says Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. But do you remember how it all happened? It was a raiding army, and it was a wind, and it was fire from heaven. And the text doesn't say Satan went out and did it. Now, you've read the backstory, and you assume somehow Satan's involved in this. And some of you are perceptive thinking people. And you came to me after we looked at that section, and you said, Are you telling me that Satan's in charge of fire and wind and tornadoes? And I said, I don't really know, because the text doesn't really say that, does it? But we assume that he had an involvement in that, because we've read the backstory. When you come to chapter 2, it's just more clear 
about what's happening. Job chapter 2 verse 7, Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck. He's the actor, that's the verb. He struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. He's immediately responsible. And you know that God is ultimately sovereign over all of it. Now here's what's really interesting about the book of Job. Maybe one of the most fascinating things. That's the last time Satan's in it. After this, we're done with Satan. We're not going to talk about Satan anymore. We've talked about him a lot in the first couple of weeks. Last week and this week. He's not in the book moving forward. I talked with one of our elders today. I asked him, who do you think wrote the book of Job? We talked about this over lunch. I don't think it was Job, personally. Could be totally wrong. Don't write that down. Don't quote me. I don't think it was Job. I think the way this story plays out, Job didn't know anything about the sons of God presenting themselves and having a conversation in the presence of God. He didn't know anything about God bragging on him and his integrity. He didn't know anything about Satan and his evil intentions. He didn't know anything about any of it. And Satan is up in the story up to this point, and then he disappears. And Job doesn't ever talk about him, and Job doesn't ever say, hey, Satan did this. He never attributes any of it to Satan. I don't think he knew all of those details. I thought about a lady I knew. Uh, some of you know I spent a summer serving the North American Mission Board uh, in the desolate wasteland of the big island of Hawaii at a church. It was a hard summer of labor, and I served in this church. And there was a lady that I had to work with a lot in this church, a very kind woman. And uh, there was two of us working in this church, and she gave us rides a lot of times to the things we had to be at. She blamed the devil for everything that happened in her life. Red lights. Stoplights. I don't know if you knew that, but apparently the devil controls them. Every time you hit a red light, no, the devil did that. She'd start, devil, why'd you turn that light red? The devil? Where did y'all send me? The devil. One day it started raining. That was the devil's fault. At one point, we're on the big island side. It doesn't rain a lot. It got really dry. Guess whose fault that was? Devil's fault. Songs on the radio she doesn't like? I mean, on and on and on. The devil, the devil. I'm just telling you, you read the book of Job. Satan's there. He's real. He wants to destroy him. Nothing to cluck your tongue at. But Job doesn't ever blame him for anything. He doesn't ever, ever give him any credit for any of the things that have happened. He only acknowledges that God is sovereign over all the things that have happened. So he doesn't blame the devil. He did not curse God. Instead, he recognizes the sovereignty of God, and that's verse 10. Shall we not receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? Again, I want to be clear. When Job says that in verse 10, the very next verse says, "In all this he didn't sin with his lips. He's not blaming God as the author of evil. He's simply acknowledging that God is sovereign over it. That's the foundational truth. So that's Job's suffering. Now let's talk about Job's wife and Job's friends. His wife and his friends. Uh, what I'm about to say may sound odd to you. So I'm going to say it and then let me explain it. Job's wife spoke for Satan. Encouraging Job to do what? Curse God and die. Skin for skin, if you touch him, he'll curse you to your face. You can do it, but don't take his life. And she shows up and she says to Job, curse God and, and die. How many of you were here on Wednesday nights when we did our Wednesday night series on the Bible? Remember, this has not been that long ago. We spent the first half of the semester talking about what the Bible is. Uh, it's inspired, and it's inerrant, and it's powerful, uh, and it's beautiful, and it's unified. We talked about all these things. And then after spring break, we talked about how to interpret the Bible, how to make sense of the Bible. And there was one night we were talking about the importance of reading the Bible in context. It's important for you to read the Bible in context. And sometimes people read individual verses, and they take them out of context, and you say, 
uh, well, I don't think that's what that verse actually meant when it was in the Bible in the first place. And you can twist it to say all sorts of things. And I gave an example in that sermon. And I said, you know, in Job 2.9, there's a verse in the Bible that says, curse God and die. And you kind of need to know the context if you're going to understand that. Just as a, an offhand example. And I made a comment in that sermon that's not a verse we put on our coffee cups for a reason. True story. Had a friend in town, worked at another church. He doesn't live here anymore. He was listening to our series online. And about a week after that posted, I got a coffee cup. And it says, has a Bible verse on it. It says, curse God. And die, Job's wife. I've never taken a sip out of this cup. <laughs> it just sits in a shelf in my office, buried under some stuff. I don't look at it. I don't display it, but I have it. Curse God and die. Look, you have to know the context. Just because a verse is in the Bible, you have to understand the context of it, okay? Now, this is, I've made light of something, but it's for a really important purpose. You can't pull that verse out and say, well, the Bible says curse God and die. That's what Job's wife said, and it was bad advice, okay? Remember I told you, next week we're going to look at Job's lament, and then we're going to hit the accelerator, and we're going to talk about this big block of conversation. Okay, I'm telling you, right now, there are a lot of things said by Job and Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar that are not right, and there's a lot of things that they say that are right, and it takes wisdom, this is a wisdom book, it takes wisdom to sort it out. That's why this is reflective wisdom. It's not cookies on the low shelf when you get to this conversation. But it's stuff that you have to listen to what they say and you have to say, okay, is that right? Is that right? How do those fit together? And sometimes it's just ideas back to back. You say, look, he got A right, he got B wrong, therefore the conclusion C is off. And it takes wisdom to discern these things. So... Job's wife, look, it would be easy for us to play the role of Satan and just slander her as a horrible person for what she said. She lost everything. She lost all her kids. And she lost her livelihood. And now in chapter 2, she's lost her husband functionally. His friends come, they don't even recognize him. It's possible, when you read her comment, that she is angry with God. Possible to read it that way. And it's also possible to read it as she loves her husband and she doesn't want to see him suffer anymore. And I don't know her motive, and you don't either. So we can think about it, but we should be slow to assign it because that's what the Satan does. He slanders people according to their motives when he shouldn't. So we should be careful there. Uh, I will tell you that what she said was, in a sense, satanic. Curse God. That's what Satan said he would do. Curse God and, and die. Augustine, the great church father, uh, writing in Latin, spoke about Job's wife as Diaboli Adjutrix, the devil's advocate. Said that she is encouraging Job to do exactly what the devil wanted Job to do. John Calvin, also writing in Latin, said that she was organum satani, she was Satan's tool. Okay, so here's what I'm trying to say to you as I, as I made this odd statement that Job's wife spoke for Satan. You remember the story about Peter Confessing Jesus as the Christ. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Blessed are you. You didn't figure this out. This was revealed to you. You're the rock. I'm going to build my church on the rock. very next thing Jesus said is, I'm going to die on a cross and suffer. And Peter said, oh, no, you're not. And Jesus said, get behind me. Satan had tempted Jesus, you know this from earlier in the Gospels, to not go to the cross, but to take a shortcut 
Three times he tempted him. Avoid the cross, avoid the suffering, take a shortcut. And that's what Peter is unwittingly doing. Okay? Jesus is not saying Peter's possessed by the devil. He's not saying Peter is the devil. He's simply saying, what you're talking right now is what Satan would have me do. And that's the role that Job's wife is playing right now. So let's talk about what Job said to his wife. Some people, uh, you can Google this if, you, if you're so inclined. Uh, some people say Job is a uh, mean, offensive, chauvinistic person for what he says to his wife. You speak as one of the foolish women speak. So let's be clear about what Job did not say. He did not say all women are foolish. But he acknowledges some are. There are foolish women, and you're speaking like them. He did not say that his wife was foolish. He said, you are speaking like one of the foolish women. He didn't say, you're a fool, woman. And all women are fools. So you're speaking like one of the foolish women speaks. Her speech is foolish, and he points his wife to the sovereignty of God. So, quote I didn't have space for on your notes. This is David Allen. Job reminded her, his wife, that we cannot, indeed must not, judge God's actions according to our own expectations of the way things should be. We do that often. We think that we know best what should happen in our lives, and we judge our circumstances and God's intervention or lack thereof based on our perception of what should or should not happen. David Allen goes on to say this. This one will hit you in the gut. Suffering is a better barometer of our spiritual life than prosperity. There's nothing quite like adversity to bring out what we really are. Squeeze a sponge, and what is inside will come out. Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. When you get squeezed in life, what comes out of your mouth is what was already there. Suffering is a, a better barometer of who we are and what's in us than prosperity. Because it's in suffering that you're squeezed and these things are revealed. So Job is squeezed here. He faced tests. Uh, there's four of them, at least, just quickly. His circumstances, lost all his possessions. His family, lost his children. His health, the sores that we've read about. And now another test, his marriage, his wife. The question is, will he hold fast to his integrity or will he curse God? Will he assume that he knows better than God or will he allow God to be God. And in verse 10, after he says, shall we not receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? The author of the book of Job says, in all this, up to this point, he did not sin with his lips. Up to that point. It's the last time we read about Satan in this book. That's the last time you read that phrase in this book. You've read it twice. You won't read it again. Guess what? In the very next chapter, the sinning starts with his mouth. We'll talk about that next week. His friends show up. Uh, they come to show sympathy and to comfort Job. Bad news travels fast. It's true in the world of Facebook and it's true in the ancient world. Uh, there's some information you can dig around with Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar and these guys, uh, where they're from, their background. Where they're from is less important than why they're there. Why they're there is because they are good friends. And they come to show sympathy and comfort to Job. And when they show up and when they see him far off, they don't recognize him. They tear their clothes. They join him in the dust and in the ashes. And they sit with him and they don't say anything day or night for a week. And we often, we often criticize these guys for showing up and talking too much. Job's the first one to talk. They show up and they sit. Now once they start talking, it goes off the rails. But they show up and they sit and they show sympathy. Very quickly, Derek Thomas, silence is often a good response initially to another's trouble. Not absence, silence. 
Too often we feel the need to rush in with words of explanation in a crisis when often no words are suitable. It's not always appropriate to cite Romans 8.28 at the very moment of crisis. Comforting and helpful, though those words proved to be in their time, Job's friends initially at least did the right thing. They wept with him that wept. What do we learn from this? I know we're short on time. Number one, we don't know everything about life on earth or life in heaven. Job didn't know everything. I'm going to give you these quickly. Just examples of things that uh, are instances of suffering. It's hard for us to discern these things. There is suffering in this life because we live in a fallen world. Genesis 3, everything under Adam's dominion has been placed under a curse. Number two, there's suffering in this world because of the consequences of other people's sin. Think about a man in the Old Testament named Naboth who was murdered in cold blood because a wicked king wanted his field. He suffered. It was because of someone else's sin. There's also suffering because of the consequence of our sin. Peter talks about this in 1 Peter chapter 4. He talks about you might suffer because you're a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. And you might suffer because you do something wrong. And Peter acknowledges in the very next verse, you might suffer because you have faith in Jesus. Job reminds us that there is suffering in the world because of the work of Satan. Suffering is a complex reality. And in real time, you and I are not greatly equipped to discern all the things that are happening. Because the reality is we don't know everything about life in this world and we don't know everything about life in the unseen world. So we should probably be slow to try to discern what kind of suffering we're facing, at least in the immediacy of a situation. A couple of truths about God. The highest good in the universe is the glory of God, not our comfort. It's an idea we talked about a few weeks back. Parallel with that, God is absolutely sovereign over all that he created. Look, again, the fundamental thing that's happening here is that Satan has slandered God. Job will not, would not, could not love you if you afflicted him. You're not worthy of it. And God is out to prove that he is worthy of it. He vindicates his name. Job passes the test. He doesn't curse God. Two truths about Jesus. Jesus was the greater friend. He's the greater friend. Job had friends, and they were good friends initially. They showed up, and they sat with Job. They were with Job. Jesus, in the Bible, is given the title Emmanuel. Hope you know what that means if you go to this church. God with us. The story of the gospel is that God didn't just look down at our sin and our mess and our suffering and say, you can have it but he entered into it. He's with us, not just with us. Jesus is also the greater Job. What do I mean by that? Jesus did not come just to sit with us. Jesus came to suffer for us. So one of the things you'll read about Job when you read in commentaries is that Job falls into a category. There's other examples in the Old Testament. He falls into the category of a righteous sufferer. That means somebody who suffers and their suffering is not because of one particular sin that they have committed. He's a righteous sufferer. All those examples through the Old Testament, and Job is a big one, point you forward to Jesus who is the true righteous sufferer. The one who never sinned, who never broke God's law, who willingly chose to suffer for us in our place in a redemptive way. And you know what? Just like God was sovereign over Job's suffering, God was sovereign over the suffering of his son. Okay, Acts chapter 2, verse 23. The crucifixion was the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Wicked people did it, and God was in complete control of it. Acts chapter 4, verse 28. Everything that happened to Jesus was exactly what God's plan had predestined to take place. They were responsible for their sin against Jesus, and it was exactly 
what God had predestined to take place. So, as we go through Job, we learn lots of things about God. We learn lots of things about Satan and evil and sin and suffering. And we learn lots of things about ourselves. And all of those basic truths we put together when we get to the New Testament. We understand the gospel of Jesus Christ because we understand who God is. We understand the reality and the problem of sin, and we understand suffering, and that we are suffering as sinners, and Jesus came to suffer for us. All of these truths help us to understand the gospel. So we'll end with this quote from Barry Webb. On the whole, the friends have done well, much better than Job's wife, and never better than when they fell silent. Remarkably, the silence was maintained for seven whole days and nights, but it could not last. The emotions involved were too strong to be contained any longer, especially when Job himself broke the silence by cursing the day he was born. It was like a burst dam that released a flood. Next week we'll talk about that flood. Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for this uh, book of Job. And uh, Father, it's a book that speaks about something that is all too real to us. Lord, I think about Just the folks who are here tonight, I think about our college kids, I think about our high school students, middle school students upstairs. Lord, we understand suffering. Maybe not exactly like Job, but we understand suffering. God, we rest in the truth that you are sovereign over everything that happens in this world. We don't tremble for the enemy. We want to be people who fear you. We thank you that Jesus came to be with us. He's God with us. We thank you that Jesus came to suffer and to die for us in our place as our substitute. We thank you for the hope and the life that we have in Jesus. Father, we pray again that your word would sustain us and be a rock underneath our feet. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.